A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to Rex Factor! This week... What happened to Henry VIII? With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Rats Factory, bringing all the kings and queens of England from Alpha the Great to Elizabeth II. Though not today. Though not today, we're not reviewing anybody because we've already reviewed Henry VIII. But, although we finished that all off and did very well today, he did jolly well, didn't he? Um, we did, however, have one question outstanding which we thought needed to be answered, which was, obviously, what happens to Henry VIII? We had this sense of a great potential at the start of his mm. reign, a good-looking young king that everybody loved, who ends up becoming a big, fat tyrant. And you've got to ask, how come he ends up going from one to the other? So it's not what happened to him, did his body disappear, Area 51 stuff. Or just why haven't we heard from him? Yeah, well, he's been locked away a long time, yeah. Indeed. So, we want to know, why did he change, or did he change at all? I've got a theory myself. I touched on last time, I think it's lost, but we'll see. Okay, well, just to give a bit of context, in case you haven't listened to the previous episode, or you haven't listened to it for a while... Well, I don't, don't know why. Well, exactly. Every day we listen yeah. to it. Um, he had a lot of early promise as a king. Um, he was a good-looking young man, great ability, athleticism, revered by his contemporaries, being this perfect Renaissance prince. So recall he was about six foot two, when he was 21 he had a 32 inch waist. And he's a conventional, pious monarch. Indeed he was so pious that he wrote a treatise against Martin Luther in defence of the Pope, mm. for which he was awarded the title Defender of the Faith. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, we touched on that and then we still have it now even though it's not a thing he can handle. Exactly, so he's a good Christian king and very good looking indeed. His appearance, Thomas More said of him, among a thousand noble companions, the king stands out the tallest and his strength fits his majestic body. There is fiery power in his eyes, beauty in his face and the colour of twin roses in his cheeks. That's nice. It's very nice. And we also remember from 1515, um, Piero Pasquiario, who was a, an ambassador from Venice, I think, saying that he was the most handsome potentate he'd ever seen, uh, the extremely fine calf to his leg, auburn hair combed straight, and a round face so beautiful it'd become a pretty woman. Right, yeah. So he's a very so good-looking young he's man. he's hot. He's hot and he's able. Again, Mr Piero... Um, noted that he spoke French, English and Latin, plus a little bit of Italian, plays well on the loop and the harpsichord, sings from book at sight, draws the bow with greater strength than any man in England, and jousts marvellously. Believe me, he is in every respect a most accomplished prince. But it all goes wrong. It does all go wrong. But at the accession, everybody thinks this is going to be the greatest thing that's ever happened to England. Though, Thomas More again. If ever there was a day, England, if ever there was a time for you to give thanks to those above, this is that happy day. 
but this day consecrates a young man who is the everlasting glory of our age and makes him your king, a king worthy not just to rule a single people, but single-handed to rule the entire world, a king who will wipe the tears from every eye and banish our long distress with joy. Yeah, okay, I'm going to form Mm. ideas. And uh, Mount Joy, remember from last week, the heavens laugh, the earth exults, all things full of milk, of honey and nectar. King does not desire gold or gems or precious metals, but virtue, glory, immortality. All right, so that's him now, or at the, at the start of his that's reign? That's him at the start of his reign. He exceeds the throne at 17, but this is observing him a few years later as well, mm-hmm. in his early 20s. Very good-looking, very capable, the perfect Renaissance prince. Right, Everything so how does it end? It ends with his chest measurement being 57 inches. Blimey. His waist being 54 inches, up from 32 when he exceeds, <sighs> and he weighs 28 stone. And he has to be moved around in a specially constructed carrying chair. That's, that's a hell of a weight gain, isn't it? It really is. Also had a staff, which appears in some of his laser portraits, actually. Help him stand up. And in 1542, he had this great walnut bed in Whitehall, but it had to be enlarged to accommodate his increasing bulk. And indeed, apparently, some of his courtiers started to adopt a sort of bulkier style of clothing. They would actually pad out their clothes to make it almost a sort of a fashionable thing. And a, or to make him look less big. To make him look less yeah. fat and horrible. Wow. So he becomes absolutely huge. And he doesn't just become fat, he becomes a bit of a tyrant as well. Lots and lots of executions. Two of his wives, mm. one of whom is almost certainly innocent mm. of the crimes, and the other of whom was probably just a teenager, at best 20. Some of his chief ministers and friends, including Thomas More, who had so many nice things to say about him yeah. when he came to the throne, Thomas Cromwell, who served him so loyally. He broke from Rome with the Reformation, so a thousand years of Catholicism just wiped out yeah. like that in terms of the official religion. Breaks the monasteries in the dissolution and creates the court where it's driven and riven by faction. People vying against each other, plots afoot. Yeah, right. so, so after the first secure succession, he leaves it... All, um, well, he, he does leave it to a son who's a minority, but nobody questions the right. minority. So in that sense, it's secure, but it's a horrible place to be. Uh, Sir Anthony Denny, one of the sort of prominent men at court at the end of the reign, said that the court is a place so slippery that duty never so well done is not a staff enough to stand by always very surely where you shall many times reap most unkindness where you have sown greatest pleasures, and those also ready to do you much hurt, to whom you never intended to think any harm. And one of his other contemporaries, Sir William Paget, said that under Henry VIII, all men feared to speak, though the meaning were not evil. There's a real sense, Mm. even the people that are looking after him, they know it's incredibly dangerous. You don't even have to say something treasonous. You don't have to try and make an enemy of somebody, but if in some way you don't fit... You could be for the chump. Well, yeah, not not nice. So it's not a nice place. So how does that wonderful man who comes to the throne yeah. end up in this horrible big fat tyrant? Okay, let's do it. Well, we have got some theories to go through. In fact, we've got three right. big theories, and this big is what we're going to look at. The first one is that Henry was affected by health and injury, and that turned him from being a really nice, lovely guy into a fat, horrible, slightly mad tyrant. Right. So, and the important thing to remember is from about 1509 to 1529, 
which is about 20 years. We pretty much skipped over that in our first episode. Yeah, because all the juicy bits are... Um, all the juicy yeah. stuff comes later, so he, for the most 20 years of his reign, nothing really that awful happens. He's just being good. He's writing the treatise of... Yeah, he does that treatise. I mean, for the most part, he's just having fun and partying yeah. while Cardinal Wolsey is running the country. Fair enough. But it's worth remembering, for most of that early part, the reign, he's not being this horrible tyrant. So there is the sense that... Something happens. Something changes him. So there's a switch that we're looking for. Exactly. And some people, as we said, suggest it was the injuries and ill health that changed him. So, what were those things? Well, he had a few accidents, which might have caused some problems to him. In 1524, um, whilst jousting, which he loved to do, he was running against his great friend Charles Brandon, the Duke of Suffolk, but unfortunately failed to put down his visor, which guards his head and his mm. eyes, before he started to run. The crowd started shouting and warning, stop, stop, the visor's up, but Henry doesn't hear, Suffolk doesn't hear. And of course, Suffolk gets his lance and it goes right in through the gap left by the visor. Ooh. So Henry gets effectively a joust. In the face. In the face. Oh. Indeed, um, the chronicler at the time, uh, Edward Hall, said, the Duke struck the king on the brow right under the defence of the headpiece on the very skull. It broke all to shivers. All the king's headpiece was full of splinters. Good grief. That, did, that, that, did, that, I'm so surprised that didn't kill him. Could so easily have killed him, or at least blinded him. However, he's lucky that it seems that it went in in such a way that it didn't Glanced, yeah. absolutely smash into his head. It just breaks up Blimey. without actually having done the damage. Everyone was very worried, but Henry, to prove that he was okay, ran six more lengths of the joust. So he did another six jousts. Straight away. Semi-concussed. Well, yes, semi-concussed, <laughs> but just to prove he wasn't hurt. However, from 1527 onwards, he suffers from recurrent migraines. Hmm, Which suggests that he could have suffered a serious enough head injury, certainly to have a long-lasting condition. And yeah. Of course, head injuries yeah, yeah, yeah. can have an impact on personality. Absolutely. Okay, I did not know that. I heard about the leg one. Is mm. that what we're coming on to? That's what we're coming to right. next. In 1536, he has another accident while jousting, mm. at which point he's about 45 years old at this point. 1520? 1524, he was 33, so at that point he's... That, this big. always surprised me about Henry VIII, how all of the stuff I know about him is so much later in his yes. life. Right, okay, so he's already 45 and he's just... So he's 45 in 1536, right. when he has his next big accident. Again, he was knocked from his horse, which reportedly fell on top of him. Mm. And he was unconscious for two hours. Good Lord, yeah. And again, lots of concern that he might die. People really worried. And this really does suggest unconsciousness for two hours, that he could have suffered damage to the sort of cerebral cortex, which again does um, affect personality and your mood and temperament. You can become shorter of temper, angry, unpredictable. So when, this may be jumping forward a little bit, but when can we, is there a time we can identify that he first did something a bit cracker, a bit tyrannical? Well, he does, there is are little gradual? bits of tyrannical things, as we'll pick up okay, generally, we'll pick but up. 1536 is the year that Anne Boleyn Gets the and chop. all of that lot get mm. the chop. And then, of course, from that point on, he has... And when did he have the accident, sorry? Um, this is 1536, was this, this second accident. And that's the year he chops? That's the year he chops off Anne Boleyn's head and, of course, all the... Associated yeah, nobles connected yeah. with her. After that, he has another four wives after Anne Boleyn, another one of whom gets executed. Yeah. And then that's when, after which Cromwell falls, after which the court mm. in its final years develops as a tyranny. So there does seem to be a sense that the tyranny comes after. 
You know, after the health issues, yeah. Okay, right. Well, That's okay. not to say there isn't anything before, but we'll no. come back to that. Um, the other thing this does, of course, is called serious injury to his leg, as you were saying. Um, on the one hand, the damaged tibia could have caused a thing called chronic osteitis, which is a really painful bone infection. So there's a suggestion that if the wound healed over while the bone was still infected, this could have caused serious fevers and also helped the ulceration to be really, really bad. Mm. But Henry's big problem in life was leg ulcers. Apparently he had suffered from this in 1528, but it had been fixed by a doctor. The doctor had seen to it and he'd been cured. However, this injury flares it all up again. Mm. And it never, ever heals. So it breaks open this varicose ulcer. After that, it becomes chronic. It discharges this sort of foul-smelling pus. Nearly kills him in 1538 when it causes something like a blood clot to his lung. And he couldn't speak for like a week and went black in the face with pain. It keeps coming back year after year. He's in absolute agony whenever it does. Always a chance he could die. It becomes more and more recurrent. And it immobilises him, so he can't exercise anymore. He can't do any more jousting or exciting stuff like that. So that means he's going to get fat. Right. So again, on the one hand, he's going to be a bit um, tetchy. Yeah, it hurts. Be, yeah. And also, he's not able to do all the fun stuff anymore. Mm, so the only fun stuff he can do is his eating. Eating and chopping people's heads off. Mm, That's all okay. he's got left. And as we were saying, um, we've got the health in terms of his ulcer, we've got the accidents in terms of his head. There's also a theory by a person called Robert Hutchinson that he might have suffered from something called Cushing or Cushing syndrome. Oh, I've heard of this. This is an incredibly rare affliction which affects something like 10 to 15 people per million today. Very, very rare. But symptoms are gross obesity in the body's trunk and also around the necks and sometimes a bit of a sort of hump uh, to the back. Face becomes swollen with fatty deposits on the lower half uh, beneath the eyes as well. So down here from Mm. eyes to cheeks. Um, And that can create this sort of moon face. So you have this slightly odd... Right, yeah. Big shaped head. And um, the bones become weakened, exercise is incredibly painful. Right. And as a result of this, you become irritable, depressed, anxious, mood swings are incredibly common, sometimes psychosis, paranoia, becoming really suspicious. And a propensity to chop people's heads off. And a propensity to chop your wife's heads off. But it's it's impossible to be certain, but it does fit a lot of Henry's. Yeah later symptoms and he becomes detached from people he loves so even people that he doesn't kill like Cranmer um, and his last wife Catherine Parr he does agree for death warrants to be drawn up for them and then changes his mind so that does sort of suggest that you know maybe yeah he's not something else he's not firing all cylinders towards the end is he not quite right so maybe it was a disease right but so we've got head injury we've got leg injury and we've got potential disease it's all, it's all mounting up. All mounting up, but some people have taken a different view. So is this, theory, this is theory two? This is theory two. And this is events, i.e. stuff that happened caused emotional, psychological trauma which pushes him over the edge from a lovely Renaissance guy into a tyrant mm. from which he can never return. Mm. So, first of all, we have David Starkey. Famous. Famous historian. He's picked 1530 as the sort of tipping point, the year at which Henry turns. Okay, but we had 1535 with the health. Um, Is that right? 1536. Well, we had 1524 when he has his first accident, 1536 when he has his next one. So 1530 for events. So Starkey's chosen the events 
leading up to 1530. So he said that there are two Henrys, as we said, the old one and the young one, and they are very, very different. In terms of his upbringing, he points out to the fact he's brought up among women, i.e. his mother, his grandmother and his sisters, whereas usually the prince would be brought up among men. Yeah. Which is what his older brother, Prince Arthur, was done. Right. So he was because, brought up among yeah, men. Right. Henry as the spare heir, brought yeah. up among women. So Starkey suggested that this created an effect of Henry being incredibly spoiled, this sense of him being the most important person in the world. And he loved pageantry, he had a sense of his own place in history, and he lusted after fame and glory. So he was utterly conventional in that sense, apart from the fact that he got this slightly feminised mm. upbringing mm. and loves being around women and thus has these romantic notions of marrying for love. Generally, he's very conventional, and the way in which conventional monarchs in this period make their name is through glory and war. So he's influenced by Edward I, Edward III, and particularly Henry V, with Agincourt having been just a sort of hundred years previously, defining battle for that generation. But Henry doesn't manage to make his mark in military terms, as we had last time, he has a few campaigns, 1513, when he first went over, had a little bit of success, but it came to nothing. 1520s, Suffolk went over, did a bit of stuff, but again, forced to come back. Henry isn't able to make his mark in military terms, and he's frequently outdone by his rivals in France and Spain. And what's more, he's wasted all of the wealth left to him by his father, Henry VII. Which is incredible. Which is incredible yeah. amount of money, and he gets rid of it all on the warfare. Mm. So he's not succeeded on that front. And, of course, as we established, he doesn't have a male heir mm. at this point. So in 1528, uh, there was an outbreak of a thing called sweating sickness, which was sort of quite common in this period, in particular to England, whereby people would suffer a sudden onset of a sort of a fever and a chill and could die within the day. And it particularly affected rich male nobles really? for some reason. Um, Henry was a hypochondriac at the best of times, so he sort of is running around the country trying to get away from the disease. And it's really, really bad. One of his best friends, uh, William Compton, dies from it. And there's a real sense that Henry is forced to face his own mortality. And he looks at everything and thinks, at this point, 1528, 1529, he's been ruling for 20 years, but he's actually got absolutely nothing to show for it. Mm. He's failed in war, he doesn't have a male heir, Mm. he's got no achievements... He also falls madly in love with Anne Boleyn, resolves to marry her, and he's now desperate to change things. He's got to get his reign back on track, he's got to get that male heir. And he'd thought that because of the way that he'd been so devoted previously to the Catholic Church, the Pope would say, yes, off you go, get your divorce, I don't mind. But it was complicated by the fact that his rival, Charles V in Spain, who was the nephew of his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, had taken control of the papacy and thus... They wouldn't give him the divorce. Yeah, yeah. And it's this point at which Henry, in effect, crosses the Rubicon. He decides, I have to get what I want. They're stopping me. So I'll just break I'll break with the Church of Rome. Yeah, he did, every, he did whatever it took to get his way. He did whatever it took, and he'd done whatever it took to get his divorce. And when that failed, which by 1529, after Campeggio had come across and had that commission where they just procrastinated yeah. for ages, at that point, Henry realises... Rome is not going to give me what I want. And it's at this point that he changes everything and moves towards breaking with Rome. Right. And Starkey's argued that that's the point at which he changes from being this completely conventional monarch, obsessed with war and all these sorts of things, to something completely new. The Reformation, a new Church of England, 
breaking from Rome, making himself supreme head of church of England. Yeah, that's not going to play well with his character, is it? If he's been brought up to think he's the centre of the earth mm. and then decides to do that bold move where he is now spiritual leader as well. And he's second now only to God. Yeah, mm. he can do whatever he likes. You would just go a bit power mad, more than you, more than even he was before as king. Mm. Amazing. Plays to his character. Exactly. So there's a sense that he's broken a little bit of his soul in the process mm. and he's now lost the limitations that mm. he had on himself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So that's David Starkey's view, 1530. An alternative is supplied by a chap called G.J. Mayer, who has seen 1534 as the year in which it really can be set to turn. Because by 1530, although maybe that's the tipping point in terms of when Henry's starting his journey, he's still not actually broken with Rome at this point. He's still in constant negotiation and trying to force things through. But 1534 is the year when he actually has the act of supremacy, where he is declared supreme head of the Church of England. This is when he's formally broken away from Rome, and what's more, Parliament and all the bishops have been forced to bend to his will. Because for quite a few years, they were still holding out, they weren't happy about it, they weren't having anything, and Henry wasn't being able to force them to do what he Mm. wanted. But 1534, he's forced Parliament, he's forced the bishops, and he's broken from Rome. So he's got rid of three massive institutions that had a hold over him and he is now king of them yeah yeah so that's that I mean I can see David Starkey's point that as soon as the idea Mm. was in his mind then effectively it's as good as done because it goes you know he'd do anything to see it through so (laughs) that's the point where he decides Mm. but I suppose yeah 1535 when it actually happens that's when he's actually done it yeah yeah but an alternative view but nevertheless still on events, um, is that it could have been 1536 as the year that's changed him. That's the same year as the accident, second accident. The same year as the accident, indeed. And this is um, by historian Susanna Lipscomb, who has seen that this is, in effect, his annus horribilis, in which so many devastating things happen that it fundamentally changes him. That everything that happens after he does after 1536 is in reaction to what happens in that year. Mm. So here are some of the events of 1536. These are the ones that I think <coughs> I'm going to... yeah. Catherine of Aragon, his first wife, dies. Now, on the one hand, when he heard the news about this, he and Anne Boleyn dressed in vivid yellow, and he was said to have marked something like, hooray, there's not going to be a war with Spain then. Mm. However, when he received his final letter from Catherine of Aragon, which is a very emotional uh, letter, apparently he was said to have shed a few tears. Mm. And he'd been married to her for 20 or years by that point so he must have felt something still for her mm. and he did love, marry for love didn't he he did originally and she was one of the only people that had actually been with him since the start of his reign and had known him mm. in his younger Gloria days so there's a sense that, that must somewhere have affected him a little bit so it's also his first because <coughs> when did he divorce her 1532 or 33 is when officially when he was breaking from Rome yeah. and all that mm. so that, yeah, that whole period is really crucial, isn't it? Mm. There's Anna Cerebris, obviously, but it, um, but uh, from that divorce and from the break with Rome, he's breaking with his old self, with his first wife, and yeah. it really, this is the turning point in the 30s. Mm. Also dies um, Henry Fitzroy. Now, he didn't feature him much last week, but he was Henry's illegitimate son by Mr. Oh, Elizabeth yeah. Blount. Yeah. And it was suggested that in 1536, Henry was actually getting ready for some legislation. In fact, he did have some legislation which meant that he could name whoever he wanted as heir regardless of their legitimacy yeah which meant that he could name his illegitimate son 
as heir, and thus he would have a backup as king. Yeah. So if he doesn't have any more proper sons, he's got one. Mm. And he's 17 years old in 1536, so he's, he's, you know, he's not just a little but child. he's brought up in court as well. He's brought up in court. He was Duke of Richmond. And everyone was, knew he was Henry's son. Everyone knew he was Henry's son. Henry acknowledged him as such. And he was friends with all those great noblemen at the time. There were only two other dukes alive in 1536. There's Norfolk yeah. and Suffolk. And then this chap, Henry Fitzroy. But no, nobody else is a duke. Really? Mm. So that's the, is that the highest appointment? That's highest you can be. Yeah. So, he's an important person. Apparently they were very close. He had a much stronger relationship with Fitzroy, in a way, than he did with his legitimate son, Edward. So, yeah, that's yeah. Crazy, yeah. So, he dies, which at that point means Henry, again, doesn't have any male children yeah. at all. And he's 45 at this point, mm. of course. Um, he suffers his jousting injury, as we said, with the terrible ulcer, the unconsciousness, the fact that he can't exercise again. Once Anne Boleyn hears the news of this and hears that his life is in danger, she miscarries his son. Ah. Which, of course, is going to be pretty yeah. bad enough as it is. And that turns him against Anne Boleyn, which leads to her execution as well as lots of other people's executions. The Pope is preparing a bull of deposition, whereby France and Spain are obliged, or at least encouraged, to make war, and all that. To make war yeah. in England and depose Henry. We also had the Pilgrimage of Grace, which is this major rebellion in the north of England where about 40,000 people were gathered at Doncaster. If they'd wanted to, potentially could have marched on London and been a real threat to the throne. Of course, he meets uh, and marries Jane Seymour in this year. And that's an awful lot going on. It is. It really is. What year is the Mary Rose? Oh, that's much later. That's okay. 1545, I think. But the impact of all of this, he has a sense of betrayal, both of the Anne Boleyn, some of the other noblemen who were accused of adultery with her, also the Pope, who he'd once supported so strongly, was now turning against him in the strongest way. Disillusionment, everything's gone so terribly, terribly wrong. Emasculated, to a certain extent, because he's been sees himself as having been cuckolded yeah, by yeah. Anne Boleyn. And what's more, um, she was even said to have said that he had sort of impotency problems. Well, I suppose he's... Which well, came up in his in a public trial. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, he's not going to enjoy that. Not going to enjoy that but very he, much yeah, at all. Not being able to produce male air, he'd sort of freak out. Indeed. And there's context that he's turned 45 at this point, which in Tudor context is pretty much old age. Mm. And as you said, he's no longer able to exercise, which was his great sort of manly thing of being able to joust and ride the horse and look splendiferous. Can't do that anymore. Mm. He's facing old age, sitting about in chairs, not being able to do very much. So his response is he's merciless whenever he perceives any kind of betrayal. So we see the execution of Anne Boleyn, of Robert Ask in the Pilgrimage of Grace, and then lots of people thereafter. He marries Jane Seymour, gets right on wanting to get a new heir. He marries Jane Seymour, he, well, he gets the permission to marry her the day that Anne Boleyn's executed. He marries her about a week later, so there's no delay. Yeah. Yeah. No mourning. <clears throat> he also has a permanent beard from this point onwards. Did he not before? He dabbled with it before, um, but he hadn't had it permanently. Apparently Catherine of Aragon had originally got him to get rid of it because she didn't like it very much. Oh, right. But from this point onwards, he always had a beard, and apparently that, at the time it was considered a great symbol of masculinity. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. As yeah. such, when apparently um, when they took control of Galway in Ireland in 1536, he commanded that all the men in Galway had to shave. 
They have no luck, the Irish, what with John pulling their beards. And then Henry cutting yeah, them off. Yeah, Henry cutting them off. The suggestion is that that's a show of dominance, yeah. of male dominance, making them shave so they don't have their beards. So all his portra- portraits are done pretty much in this latest period. Well, this is key. 1536 is when Holbein does some of his most famous portraits of Henry VIII. So you have the, the one where it's just sort of his shoulders, bust mm. and his head yeah. against a stark blue background filling the screen, very, very powerful figure, not looking pretty and round-faced and girly as he was before, but strong, manly, bearded, mm. and something that you absolutely wouldn't mess with. He, Holbein did as one where he's got his hands on his hips as well and looking huge, and the picture itself is huge. Exactly, same year. Originally it was a mural where you've got Henry, Jane Seymour, and also his father and his mother, and Henry's obviously the bigger one, but then there's that main one, which is Henry by himself in his gorgeous... Yeah, big... Red uh, coat. Yeah. As you said, hands on hips, and there's a big, bulging codpiece, yeah. incredibly well-decorated, and again, suggesting this is him imposing his masculinity. Also very square shoes. If you look at that, he's got very square shoes on. Hmm. Bit odd. Yeah. But so he's now portraying himself as powerful, as dominant, he's staring directly into the eyes of the viewer. He's not looking at an angle, which mm. all the old portraits used to do. Yeah, he's taking the world on. Exactly. So the aftermath is everything, she says, after 1536 is a reaction to 1536. Zero tolerance for any perceived threat or betrayal, hence why the court becomes so riven by faction, because of the slightest whiff that someone is against him or isn't going to support him, then they're out of there. Suspicious of everybody, unable to move or exercise, so he's getting a bit depressed, and absolute tyranny. Yeah, yeah, it's not good. All of these theories are identified in the mid... Mm. 1530s. Definitely. And there's a sense, which I think sort of comes key, certainly to the first two, but to a sense all of them. And again a quote from the very perceptive Thomas More. He gave some advice to Cromwell, and he said to him that ever tell the king what he ought to do, but never what he is able to do. For if a lion knew his own strength, hard were it for any man to rule him. So there's a sense that in this period, the sort of the, the 1530s, and in fact the first five or six years, Henry realises just how powerful he is. And from that point onwards... No stopping him. Yeah, that's intriguing. Hmm. Intriguing. Well, we've got one more theory. Our final one is that actually he's always a bit of a bad egg. Has he though? What about the first 25 years? Well, um, first of all, we'll cut off all those injuries Mm. which we've had. Alison Weir has said that there's no evidence that Henry suffered any brain damage from these injuries. None of the chroniclers remark upon a sudden change in character. So there's nothing there to actually make a link between accident and suddenly being nasty. Yeah. And the chroniclers would have mentioned it if they said, God, he has not been nice. He's not been the same, yeah. Mm, That massive bump on his head that keeps swelling whenever he gets angry. David Starkey has said, in terms of the injuries and the illness, like the Cushing syndrome, that although they're quite interesting, they're too convenient and simplistic to really be a very strong argument. So it seems a bit too ideal that somebody's found like Cushing syndrome which affects sort of 10 people in every million and it has all of Henry VIII's symptoms but you think it's a bit easy just to say oh yeah we found this ideal illness which ticks all of the boxes it's a bit like um, typing your symptoms into the internet you'll find you've got everything under the sun exactly (laughs) and Henry VIII probably would have done because he was such a hypochondriac so I'm sure he would have believed that he had it and uh, J.J. Scarisbrick said that he was formidable captivating had all this sort of splendour Renaissance regality, but 
He was also unpredictable. His charm could turn into anger. He was highly strung, unstable, hypochondriac, and he possessed a strong streak of cruelty. Mm. I.e., he's this complex character that has the nice stuff, but the bad stuff. And it's a question of balance. Yeah, and we've seen that in other kings. For example, the best king, Edward I, he had a hell of a temper on him and went wading across a a river with his sword (laughs) drawn to go and kill his best friend. Um, But... Never really, I mean, never really, I don't know the definition of tyrant changes as um, mm. time goes on, but with the, this was never a question with him. Mm. And so so there's definitely, the fact that it's even a question means that something, he, maybe, yeah, maybe he let the balance slip, and just in his later years he thought, right, I've realised my power, this is what I'm going to do. Mm. But you could argue that he has a track record which suggests that he's not always been such a perfect prince. Right. One of the first things he did was have um, two of Henry VII's chief financial ministers, Empson and Dudley, arrested in 1509. So as soon as he becomes king, two of these people associated with the really unpopular, stringent financial pressures of the previous reign are executed and then in 1510. Sorry, arrested in 1509, executed a year later. Is that just to show that he's, he's a different king and he's not going to be doing these... It's not going to be as tight these times? It is, and it's also arguably led more by some of the rival ministers who didn't like them and Henry VIII just went along with it. Mm. But nevertheless, it's an important lesson in using ministers as scapegoats for his own policies, which is something he does to Wolsey, something he does to Cromwell. Does it in the um, Pilgrimage of Grace as well? Exactly. Other people take the blame, and Henry's more than willing to dump them Mm. if it comes along. So we've got right at the start of the reign, a pretty strong character trait is apparent there. Yeah, I think that's just... um... I mean, politicians do that today, don't they? They pass about fine scapegoats, and just in those days you happen to kill them as well. <laughs> at the end. But, yeah, OK. No, yeah. 1513, when he was going off to France, he executed Edmund de la Pole, who was one of the last Yorkist claimants to the throne. Now, Edmund had been imprisoned uh, since 1506 by Henry VII. He'd been in exile, and he'd come back to England on the proviso that he would just be imprisoned and he wouldn't be executed, which Henry VII had agreed to yeah. and had lived up to. And Edmund was obviously hoping that eventually he would get released and restored to his old position. Instead, Henry VIII, in 1513, when he's going off to France, decides, not sure if I want to leave the country and let this Yorkist be there, even if he's in prison, I think I'll have his head cut off. Easier. Easier. Mm. Now, remember, even Henry VII, when he'd had a bit of a dodgy thing when he got rid of Perkin Warbeck mm. and an Earl of Warwick, he'd concocted this um, plot or sort of a honey trap that he put them into so that they were guilty of treason, yeah. tried and executed. Henry VIII, there's not even an attempt to really put this down to anything he's done. She's just passed a post it saying kill him. Yeah. Mm. That is, yeah, you see, there's not. Not even bothering not to even make bothering it look. trial, yeah. Yeah. I mean, who was the one who did all that elaborate theatre about dragging someone out of uh, Parliament and executing them there? Oh, and Richard the Third, I think, dragging. Yeah, the guy I mean, out he was pretty ruthless and would have and loved ruthless. to be able to just kill people on the spot, but he, yeah. he did that. Mm. Mm. Also, we had in 1521 the Duke of Buckingham was executed. Mm. Now, he was the guy who was descended from the youngest son of Edward the Third, and was quite proud about it, mm. and was probably unwise in making comments about his um, claim to the throne, and was accused of having said that he was planning to kill Henry, which is obviously treason, but it's arguable that he probably didn't actually 
can't yeah, go that fast. Pretty stupid. So. Pretty stupid. But again, it's a very powerful rival being executed as early as 1521. Just securing his place. Maybe just securing his place. We also, of course, though, have Cardinal Wolsey. Yeah, this is dodgy. His advisors. It's the guy who'd um, been his law servant 1515 to 30s, pretty much around the country, but when he can't get the annulment, the divorce for Henry, he falls from favour, removed from office, and admittedly plotting a bit to try and get Anne Boleyn executed, but nevertheless he was arrested for treason, and the only reason he didn't get executed was that he died en mm. route to the trial. And then he killed, so, and his next advisor was Moore. Then Moore. He was killed. He was killed. And then the last one? Cromwell. Cromwell. Was he killed? Yeah. Blimey. But they were, the, they were his key, key subjects. I mean, they, they, mm. they ran the joint. Exactly. So we have, actually, right from the start, he's got a bad record. It gets worse, certainly. There's a point at which it gets worse, but by no means was he all milk no, and honey before but I'm definitely, I'm definitely of the opinion that there was... Um, there was something that that turned it more. It did because, as you say, it got worse. And mm. the bit before was, I'd argue, run of the mill ish. I mean, ruthless run of the mill tyranny. Yeah, exactly. For a, We've all had that. Medieval king securing his place, um, getting rid of potential rivals. I, yeah, I mean, he'd if he had kept it at that level, we'd, he'd have done pretty well on scandal. Mm. But he does turbo it. Yes. <laughs> and that's that's the fast track bit. tyranny. Yeah, yeah. But there's evidence in his upbringing that he might have been nurtured as a potential tyrant, as we said, um, brought up among women, so that he was the only boy and a prince. He probably spoilt rotten, had a sense of himself being absolutely at the centre. And what's more, he wasn't trained by Henry the Seventh for being a king in the way that Arthur had been brought up purely as a king in mm. the making. Henry the Eighth even when Arthur had died, wasn't ever really given any responsibility in the same way. So he comes to the throne, not really having much of an idea of what to do, or a sense that it's his real duty to govern. Hence yeah. why he just hands it all over to Wolsey. Yeah. It's a sense already that you've got a young man brought up not suited to the role. Not suited to the role. Gives it all over to a fellow he thinks he can trust. He wants... After 20 years, he thinks, I need to do. I need to make my mark, I need a male, I need to do something... Mm. It's then he realises the amount of power he's actually got mm. and he goes mad because he's a king without training so he's yeah. going to be just doing everything and everything. And he'd been like a caged bird, apparently, according to Spanish ambassador in 1508, so a year before he becomes king. He's never been permitted to go out of the palace except for exercise through a private door leading to the park. He takes his meals alone and spends most of his day in his own room, which has no other entrance than through the king's bedchamber. So he's kept under very tight watch. He's like a caged bird. Right. And in 1509, cage is removed. Yeah. So there's a sense that he's just no control. Yeah. And it just so happens that the first 20 years he just goes off having fun and partying, but when he comes back he wants exactly what he wants when he doesn't get it. Yeah, it all kicks off. He's got no control. Mm. So, maybe he's already been bred as a potential tyrant, and it's just that the things which kick him off don't happen until later, but it's always there. That's very true, I think. Yeah. And it's this perfect... I mean, for and also we've got the ageing process as well, obviously has an impact on him. Um, so you could argue that he suffers the mother load of midlife crises. 
Yeah, it's like the perfect storm in the 1530s. So 1536, 45 years old, reported to be quite downcast, fearful he'd never have a son. 1545, reported to be suffering from melancholy, only dressing to attend mass or play cards with other people, coming to terms with being an overweight invalid. And he's said to have um, said at the end of his reign, time is of all losses the most irrecurable, for it can never be redeemed for no manner, price nor prayer. Mm. So there's a sense that it's not a massive event necessarily, it's not an injury, it's just he's got this cruelty in him, and as the years go along and he gets less and less happy, it's inevitably going to get a bit worse. Yeah, but it does come together in the 30s in that he has these injuries mm. at the time of his old age, and he starts to break from Rome, and he cuts his wife's first head off um, possibly the injuries have health implications that we're not sure about mm. It's and he loses a, a son I, I mean yeah so it all rolls together and then it's like he, he was round shaped yes. and someone pushed him off the hill in the 1530s <laughs> and he went down and down yeah. gathering yeah. the moss there's also a sense that it's the tragedy really is that in the 16th century there weren't any Porsches because otherwise, if he'd had a midlife crisis, he could have just bought a Porsche. Oh, yeah. 16th century, there's no Porsche to buy. He's, he's got to get some Mary Rose instead, which he crashes. Even the Mary Rose <laughs> yeah. crashes. Yeah. So it's very, very tough for Henry. There's a lot of bad things which happen to him, some of which he brings upon himself, others of which weren't by his own making. But he was his own worst enemy in that he brought it on himself and he was bred to not how to know how to deal with things. Exactly. So those are all the theories of what happened to Henry VIII. We're sort of liking the 1530s mm, at the point I at am. which it's a, a turning point, I suppose. For someone that was, was uh, primed to react badly to a turning point if it ever arose. Mm. But I think that even something like 1511, when his first son by Catherine Rougan, who died after uh, just under two months, imagine if that son had lived. Mm. Well, None of the rest of it would have yeah. happened. And you can imagine that if he'd had the male heir the insecurity would have been so much less yeah. that maybe wouldn't quite have gone into that same We'd be closer to Europe. This makes huge differences today. Exactly, and it's an often overlooked young child, mm. but its death had a huge impact. A massive impact. Mm. Well, that's, that's it then. It's the death of that boy. <laughs> it's the death of that boy in 1511. That's what changed Henry VIII. But I think we've got the fact that he's always got that potential and the problem is that the things happen which kick it off yeah. in a massive, massive yeah. way. And they all come together, particularly in 1536, but in a few years before that as well. Yeah. It's the perfect storm. I reckon you're right. Got I reckon it. you're right too. Job done. Job done. So that is what happened to Henry VIII. Let us know what you think. Do you think it was more about the health, more about the events, or was he just always a nasty so-and-so? Or have we been harsh on him? Maybe... He's just been misunderstood. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'd love to hear those ones, mostly. <laughs> yes. If you think, yeah, he's a good egg wrapped up in some bad things. <laughs> yeah, let us know. Yeah, rexfactorpodcast.hotmail.com. On Twitter, we're at rexfactorpod. Leave a comment on the wall. A scotch egg. There we go. A good egg wrapped in horrible sausage meat. <laughs> yeah. Let us know. But next time, we'll be back to normal service with Henry VIII's son, Edward VI. Until then, it's goodbye for me. Cheerio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.